Have you ever received a call or text from a number that you don't know saying that a package you ordered hasn't been delivered because they need just a little bit more information from you? You don't remember ordering a package and then start wondering how this scammer got your number. Well, anytime you go online and accept cookies or buy anything online, websites can keep your data and sell it to data brokers who create a digital ID of you. They can sell this digital ID to the highest bidder, and lo and behold, a bunch of scammers get a ton of information about you that you never agreed to give them. Well, with Ecogni, this is no longer an issue. All you need to do is sign up, and Ecogni will use the GDPR and CCPA and other privacy laws to get these companies to remove your data from their networks, protecting you and your data from scammers and anyone else who wants to use your data against you. Use the link in the description or episode notes and get Ecogni today for $6.49 a month on a one-year plan and protect your data and digital ID. I live in Europe, and it's incredibly easy to travel here. By bus, train, or plane, I can be in any other European country in a matter of hours for pretty cheap. But while I'm in other countries, I still want to check my emails, check my YouTube analytics, and all that fun stuff. Well, by using Surfshark VPN, I changed my location to France using one of their 3,200 plus servers, and I'm no longer annoyed by thousands of emails from Google freaking out saying, Oh my god, there's a computer in Spain trying to hack you! There isn't Google. It's me. And thanks to Surfshark, I'm no longer bothered by these annoying messages. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and log into all your accounts anywhere with zero hassle and no annoying emails. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. This show is brought to you by my store, where you can purchase all of my audiobooks for five bucks, and you can also now purchase clothes designed by the wonderful artist who draws all the comics for this channel, Valentina Angela Rios, who you can follow in the description, and you can also find the link to the store in the description, and uh, we share the profits 50-50 from it, because she's a fantastic artist, and even better friend and artists need to be supported as much as they possibly can, because what they do is amazing. <laughs> We're continuing with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kessie today, and uh, yeah, let's dive in. It's the final part of uh, part two. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kessie Part 2 6 Crossing the grounds back to the ward, Murphy lagged at the tail end of the bunch, with his hands in the pockets of his greens, and his cap tugged low on his head, brooding over a cold cigarette. Everybody was keeping pretty quiet. They got Billy calmed down, and he was walking at the front of the group with the black boys on one side and that white boy from the shock shop on the other side. I dropped back till I was walking beside McMurphy, and I wanted to tell him not to fret about it, that nothing could be done, because I could see there was some thought he was worrying over in his mind, like a dog worries over a hole he don't know what's down. One voice saying, Dog, that hole's none of your affair. It's too big and too black, and there's a spore all over the place, says bears or something just as bad. And some other voice, coming like a sharp whisper out of the back of his breed, 
Not a smart voice. Nothing cagey about it. Saying, Sick him, dog. Sick him. I wanted to tell him not to fret about it. And I was just about to come out and say it when he raised his head and shoved his hat back and speeded up to where the least black boy was walking and slapped him on the shoulder and asked him, Sam, how about we stop by the canteen here a second so I can pick up a cotton or two of cigarettes? I had to hurry to catch up, and the run made my heart ring an excited pitch in my head. Even in the canteen, I still heard that sound my heart had knocking ringing in my head, though my heart had slowed back to normal. The sound reminded me of how I used to feel standing in the cold fall Friday night out on a football field, waiting for the ball to be kicked and the game to get going. The ringing would build and build till I didn't think I could stand it any longer. Then the kick would come, and it would be gone, and the game would be on its way. I felt that same Friday night ringing now, and felt the same wild, stomping up and down impatience. And I was seeing sharp and high-pitched too, the way I did before a game, and the way I did looking out of the dorm window a while back. Everything was sharp and clear and solid, like I forgot it could be. Ranks of sunglasses and ballpoint pens guaranteed right on them to ride a lifetime on butter underwater, all guarded against shoplifters by a big-eyed force of teddy bears sitting high on a shelf over the counter. McMurphy came stomping up to the counter beside me and hooked his thumbs in his pockets and told the sales girl to give him a couple cartons of Marlboros. Maybe make it three cartons, he said, grinning at her. I plan to do a lot of smoking. The ringing didn't stop until the meeting that afternoon. I'd been half listening to them work on Cephal to get him to face up to the reality of his problems so he could adjust. It's the Delanton, he finally yells. Now, Mr. Cephal, if you're to be helped, you must be honest, she says. But it's got to be the Delanton that does it. Don't it make my gums soft? She smiles. Jim, you're 45 years old. When I happened to catch a look at McMurphy sitting in his corner, he wasn't fidgeting with a deck of cards or dozing into a magazine like he had been during the meetings of the last two weeks. He wasn't slouched down. He was sitting up, stiff in his chair, with flushed, reckless look on his face as he looked back and forth from Seffold to the big nurse. As I watched, the ringing went higher. His eyes were blue stripes under those white eyebrows. And they shot back and forth, just the way he watched cards turning up around a poker table. I was certain that any minute he was going to do some crazy thing to get him up undisturbed, for sure. I'd seen the same look on the other guys before they climbed over a black boy. I gripped down on the arm of my chair and waited, scared it wouldn't happen. And I began to realize, just a little scared, it wouldn't. He kept quiet and watched till they were finished with Seffold. Then he swung half around in his chair and watched while Fredrickson, trying some way to get back at them for the way they had grilled his friend, griped for a few loud minutes about the cigarettes being kept in the nurse's station. Fredrickson talked himself out and finally flushed and apologized, like always, and sat back down. McMurphy still hadn't made any kind of move. I eased up where I'd been gripping the arm of the chair, beginning to think I was wrong. There was just a couple of minutes left in the meeting. The big nurse folded up her papers and put them in her basket and set the basket off on her lap. Then let her eyes swing to McMurphy for just a second, like she wanted to check he was awake and listening. She folded her hands in her lap and looked down at the fingers and drew a deep breath, shaking her head. Boys, I've 
given a great deal of thought to what I'm about to say. I've talked it over with the doctor and with the rest of the staff, and, as much as we regretted it, we all came to the same conclusion, that there should be some manner of punishment melded out for the unspeakable behavior concerning the house duties three weeks ago. She raised her hand and looked around. We waited this long to say anything, hoping that you men would take it upon yourselves to apologize for the rebellious way you acted. But not a one of you has shown the slightest sign of remorse. Her hand went up again to stop any interruptions that might come. The movement of a tarot card reader in a glass arcade case. Please understand. We do not impose certain rules and restrictions on you without a great deal of thought about their therapeutic value. A good many of you are in here because you couldn't adjust to the rules of society in the outside world, because you refused to face up to them, because you tried to circumvent them and avoid them. At some time, perhaps in your childhood, you might have been allowed to get away with flouting the rules of society. When you broke a rule, you knew it. You wanted to be dealt with, needed it, but the punishment did not come. That foolish lenience on the part of your parents may have been the germ that grew into your present illness. I tell you this, hoping you will understand that it is entirely for your own good that we enforce discipline and order. She let her head twist around the room. Regret for the job she has to do was worked into her face. It was quiet, except that high, fevered, delirious ringing in my head. It's difficult to enforce discipline in these surroundings. You must be able to see that. What can we do to you? You can't be arrested. You can't be put on bread and water. You must see that the staff has a problem. What can we do? Ruckley had an idea of what they could do, but she didn't pay any attention to it. The face moved with a ticking noise till the features achieved a different look. She finally answered her own question. We must take away a privilege. And after careful consideration of the circumstances of this rebellion, we've decided that there would be a certain justice in taking away the privilege of the tub room that you men have been using for your card games during the day. Does this seem unfair? Her head didn't move. She didn't look. But one by one, everybody looked at him, sitting there in his corner. Even the old chronics, wondering why everybody had turned to look in one direction, stretched out their scrawny necks like birds and turned to look at McMurphy. Faces turned to him, full of naked, scared hope. That single thin note in my head was like tires speeding down pavement. He was sitting straight up in his chair, one big red finger scratching lazily at the stitch marks running across his nose. He grinned at everybody looking at him, and took his cap by the brim and tipped it, politely, then looked back at the nurse. So, if there is no discussion on this ruling, I think the hour is almost over. She paused again, took a look at him herself. He shrugged his shoulders, and with a loud sigh slapped both hands down on his knees and pushed himself standing out of the chair. He stretched and yawned and scratched his nose again, and started strolling across the dayroom floor to where she sat by the nurse's station, heisting his pants with his thumbs as he walked. I could see it was too late to keep him from doing whatever the fool thing he had in mind, and just watched, like everybody else. He walked with long steps. Too long.
and he had his thumbs hooked in his pockets again. The iron in his boot heels cracked lightning out of the tile. He was the locker again. The swaggering gambler. The big, red-headed, brawling Irishman. The cowboy out of the TV set, walking down the middle of the street to meet a dare. The big nurse's eyes swelled out white as he got close. She hadn't reckoned on him doing anything. This was supposed to be her final victory over him. Supposed to establish her rule once and for all. But here he comes. And he's as big as a house. She started popping her mouth and looking for her black boys. Scared to death. But he stopped before he got to her. He stopped in front of her window. And said in his slowest, deepest drawl how he figured he could use one of the smokes he bought this morning. Then ran his hand through the glass. The glass came apart like water splashing, and the nurse threw her hands to her ears. He got one of the cartons of cigarettes with his name on it and took out a pack, then put it back and turned to where the big nurse was sitting like a chalk statue, and very tenderly went to brushing the silvers of glass off her head and shoulders. I'm sure sorry, ma'am, he said. God, but I am. That window glass was so spick and span I completely forgot it was there. It took just a couple of seconds. He turned and left her sitting there, with her face shifting and jerking, and walked back across the day room to his chair, lighting up a cigarette. The ringing that was in my head had stopped. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if listening on podcast, please leave a review. Five stars very much so preferred, but you have free will. Do what you want. Um, But it helps get it in front of as many people as possible, which would be nice. Once again, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.